This is A Habit of Words, the Nick August podcast, where I talk with writers and other creatives about using and abusing language for fun and profit. Okay, today I've got Rolo Tomasi of The Rational Mail joining me. Rolo, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate you being here. One of the things I wanted to get into right off the bat is uh, when I first read your book a few years ago, when the what struck me, in addition to a lot of the material, which was teaching me something I hadn't thought of before, um, but the other part of it was having having a little bit of an academic background myself and and trying to write some very some fairly write about some fairly complex things. I was it, it struck me how you were trying to take this somewhat heady academic subject almost and distill it and present it to a more general audience and make it accessible, mm -hmm. which to me seems like it's pretty challenging. Did you find that challenging? And, and how did you how did you go about using different tools as a writer to make that happen? I have always, um, I've always been curious about how things go together. Uh, it's never been enough for me to just put the key in the car and it starts up and you go. I always want to look what's under the hood. Um, it's not enough to turn the TV on and just watch TV that you know, to know that the TV works. I want to know like how to tear it down and put it back together again. And um, I've always used that. I've been a very creative individual, I think, for most of my life, um, whether that's like graphic arts, uh, you know, traditional arts, music, writing, uh, all kinds of stuff, but I've always sort of applied that uh, kind of like tear it down and build it back kind of thing, like reverse engineering things, I guess. Right, right. And so when I when I first started writing, it was a um, it was something that I was doing really as a writer. It was something I was doing at uh, university a lot. I had to do quite a bit of writing. And it carried over after that. And um, at the time, I was a moderator on this board called the Sosuav uh, Seduction Community. It was it's kind of like a, one of the early seduction communities. We didn't even call it PUA back then. It was uh, it was like there was alt fast seduction, there was Sosuav, and there was like a couple other ones. And I was on I, my main site was Sosuav, and that was my Twitter back then. Was you know just interacting with guys, and I really liked that format. And a lot of the ideas that are in my book are the result of about 10 years of forum discussions and bouncing ideas off of, you know, guys who were like either really super intelligent all the way down to guys who are just there to troll you. And right. it, so in, in between, uh, in, in the midst of all that, we you know, came to some conclusions and what I, why I got into doing what I do is, well, first of all, of course I had an interest in it, but, um, I was, um, I was reading a lot of the seduction community at that time. And we're talking about the early two thousands. And I wanted to know why it was that the techniques and the, the practices that these guys were putting together, why did it work? And I, I, I don't know if I've ever, ever even said this before, but there was a time where I was, I think I was reading mystery, like mystery method, uh, yeah. PUA. And uh, he said something to the effect that like when you go and you buy a uh, airline ticket, the price of the ticket is based on comfort 
right? So if you if you're in fourth class, it's all about the comfort. Like you're that's that's the most comfortable. And you're in a business class, uh, not quite as nice as as first class, but it's it's better than like coach, right? And so the, the he had this this idea, I think, at the time that um, it the, the the principle of comfort is not so much like what's more comfortable than than something else. It's what's it's it's varying levels of discomfort. And so I started thinking about that. And I go, you know, I, that led to other thoughts. And I was just like, well, um, I, I started picking things apart. A lot of their, their techniques. I'm like, why does this, from a psychological standpoint, why do these things work? And of course, he was talking about comfort at the time. But then there's all these other things that he was talking about as well. Um, imagination. Um, yeah, of course, he had this, his, his plan for, for uh, like, was it three different stages of seduction? And I'm like, okay, why are these working? For instance, like Kino, like touching, touching a woman or whatever. I will, why does that work? Mm-hmm. So that really led to just me gathering information. And uh, over the course, like I said, about 10 years, putting all this together um, and then eventually put it into a book form. Well, first of all, put it in the blog and then I put it into a book form. Um, and so a lot of that was just, uh, I mean, as a writer, I never set out to be, like an author. I just did it because it was what I thought was necessary. And I can remember in 2005 when the game came out by uh, Neil Strauss. Of course, I was, you know, in that community, in that community, but I was sort of analyzing that community. I, I kind of, yeah. I'm sort of a student, I guess, or I'm, I'm, I'm a, an observer. I, I, I jokingly refer to myself as like the Diane Fossey of the manosphere, you know, like, or the, you know, Jane Goodall, you know, gorillas in the mist. I'm watching all this human behavior going on and sort of taking notes as I'm doing this. Right. And so when, the game finally came out by Neil Strauss. I'm like, oh, finally, you know, there's a collection of all this, and now I can read this and, and, and get a little bit more, glean a little bit more from, from all this. And it wasn't the book I was expecting. It was like more entertainment value than it was. And I thought it was almost like misrepresenting what I thought it was supposed to be about. Because if you, if you ever got the, the first book of the game, like when it first came out, it looks like the Bible. And then it had all these really kind of like schmaltzy, you know, cartoons and it looked like a comic, you know, so like the chapter divisions were like with little, you know, comic art in between. And it even had like a, had a gold leaf on, I think I still, I've got it in my, my, uh, my case. There's got a gold leaf and it looked like a Bible. Like, and I'm like, oh, well, this is the Bible. This is the Bible of the Manosphere. Finally, we weren't even calling it the Manosphere. It was just, you know, Bible of PUA or something. And there was a few things in there, but it was really just sort of a documentation. It was almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with On the Road by Jack Kerouac. It was almost yeah. like, like a stream of conscious kind of thing. And then it was entertaining for sure, but it wasn't what, it wasn't the book I wanted to read. And so um, when I started the Rational Mail back in 2011, um, it was a collection of like the very first year anyways, a year and a half, like into 2012. Um, the, the, those posts, if you, if you go from the year 2011 into about halfway through 2012, all of those posts um, that made it into the first book were the, I thought, the most important uh, concepts that we had discussed over the course of about 10 or 12 years on the SoSwap forums. And like I said, I never set out to be an author, but then people kept saying, you know, you need to do a blog, you need to do a blog. And I'm like, all right. So I finally broke down and did a blog. It wasn't that big deal. And then I took those discussions and I turned them into blog posts. And then right around um, 2000, 2013 was when people started asking for a book. And I go, okay, if I'm going to do a book, what am I going to do? How am I going to write it? How am I going to go about this? And so the, the first 
the first rational mail was the book that I was kind of hoping that the game was going to be and that it never really was. And, uh, you know, they always tell you, you know, you write the book that you want to read or that you want to, you want to, you think needs to be in the universe. Right. And I was like, I know, like, I wasn't thinking that at the time I was just going, I, this is what I think is important. I didn't set out to be, to have a series of books. I didn't set out to be even really be an author. I just did it because I thought it was something that needed to be done. And so that's what I did. And I put it down. And consequently, over the course of, uh, well, it's coming up on, let's see, I, I, I published it in October of 2013. So we're almost seven years. And uh, at some point, I'll probably do a second edition. But, um, I, I put it together. It was the what I thought were the most important essays, really, uh, from from the Rational Mail, and then of course from Soswab prior to that, and um, and that's that's really how it came out. I I think really my writing style um, as an author, as a writer, uh, I, I I can only think of two sources that I would use as like say inspiration from like my writer's voice. Um, when I was studying behavioral psychology and when I was writing all of this stuff that I was sort of picking apart during the SoSwap years, I, um, I kind of got uh, almost like, like I, I go back and I read my stuff and I go, oh, did I actually say that? Did I actually write that? And it's, it's more analytical, I think. And I was using like $10 words all the time because that's what I had to do when I was at university. So right. I was, and, and it was all, uh, people will always say, I mean, they'll say like, well, you, you use these big vocabulary words because you're trying to sound smarter than you really are. I'm like, no, I think the English language is a pretty rich language. And if you go and you look at like most journalism majors and you look at like uh, anybody who writes for uh, like blog, well, certainly blogs and stuff right now, um, they're all written to, and they tell you this, like when you're in, in school, they say, you know, write to an eighth grade reading level so that people can figure that out. And I like, you know what, my, the people who read me, I'm not going to insult their intelligence by like writing down to them. I'm like, this is what you need to know. And so people would always criticize me for, for using like really big $10 words. And, and since then I've kind of cooled on that a little bit. I, I, I want, I want it to be more accessible. So I try not to overwrite anymore. Um, yeah. I'm working on a fourth book right now. Uh, and I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I, I, for, I think it's, a, it's something burn off. I can't remember the first name, but I, I read this book. I still kind of go back and pick up pick it apart, but it's a book called Writing Without Bullshit. And <laughs> it, it, it opened my eyes to, to becoming a better writer. Uh, like I said, now I'm into book number four. So I've had to sort of transition from just being a guy who writes blogs and writes things on for, you know, witty bullshit on Twitter. Um, I, uh, I've had to sort of back up off of things because I want to, like, I think the material is so important that it needs to be more accessible than using like you know, uh, I like hypergamy is, is sort of like people say that if you use hypergamy or if you like start using sort of these pickup artists lingo or this, like they say, I always say that the manosphere is jingoistic, right? Like there's, there's, it's like a secret language and that's why it's really, you know, culty or something. I was like, no, it's not. It's just, these are the terms that we need to use. But as a result, it becomes less accessible, I think, to people who are just coming into it. So after I read that book, I'm like, okay, I need to sort of simplify things. I need to back up off of the adjectives and it needs to be something that is more easily digestible because the information I think and the the ideas and the message of what it is that I write I don't know other people write too but I think it's so important that it needs to be more accessible so that people can really sort of sink their teeth into it yeah you know I the what struck me about it is that 
a lot of those subjects or the topics like hypergamy or even evolutionary psychology and biology in general are, I mean, those are pretty thick topics. There's a lot there. It's very dense and it's difficult, I think, to distill that down for a complete mass audience without losing something. So you don't, you know, you can't, you can't oversimplify it because then it takes forever to explain something and you never can really get there. But then if you if you keep it too academic or too jingoistic, then nobody can penetrate it to begin those, with. Those, those are my two, like, as I'm writing through book four, and I'm on the second, as of this recording, I'm on the second round of edits on this thing. And um, given, you know, the present state of the world, I'm, I'm really having to go back and rewrite parts of it too. So it's, you know, so it's relevant to sort of a post COVID-19 <laughs> world. So I, I'm actually kind of glad I haven't published it yet because now I can at least make it a little bit more relevant, I think. Mm-hmm. But my my main concern, like I'm, I'm writing this book about the red pill and religion and how red pill principles, when I say red pill, I mean from intersexual dynamics, inter, gender politics, intersexual dynamics from a more, I think, realistic uh, evolutionary perspective. That's what the red pill means to me. Like right now, that's what the red pill means to me. And so I'm writing it from the perspective that the audience that is going to be reading this book might not be 100% familiar with everything that I'm saying. So I have to use less acronyms. I have to use... um, trying to like define like i there're just some words i'm going to have to keep in right like hypergamy for right. people so as a result and now i have to add a section on the in the book just to sort of get people familiar with what hypergamy is so we can move on to some bigger ideas so there's some things you always have to stick with um, then there's the other stuff like uh, using um, like really defining what red pill is from my perspective is yeah, the red pill has been so bastardized over the over the course of the last ten years that, uh, like, I might say, well, the red pill is all about intersectional dynamics, and somebody will say, no, it's about political ideology and it's about traditional conservatism and it's about what you know that kind of stuff. Like, right, right. It, it, red pill is really almost kind of meaningless right now um, because it's too broad, and that's just uh, unfortunately a, it, it's a term that has become a casualty of people wanting to apply their pet ideology to whatever red pill is. So I have to all also consider that when I'm writing as well, and um, and then make sure that I'm I'm if I'm going to be jingoistic or use you know uh, game references, I have to at least in some way define what those are before I move on to uh, you know bigger and better topics, and that's really kind of always how it's been. We yeah. don't or people will criticize me for using a term like alpha. You used the term alpha without unironically. It's like, yeah, I did, and I'll tell you why. And but it's like you were saying just a minute ago. It's um, it's a very broad. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, areas within even within intersexual dynamics with respect to the red pill. Um, you have to remember that everything that I write about, and, and I'm not an expert in any of these. I'm a I'm a jack of all trades, and I'm a master of some. Not all, but not none, but master some, and um, and so there's you know there's psychology, there's evolutionary psychology, which everybody wants to to criticize. I think that's a a, a deep part of of red pill, you know, I, ideas, anyways. Um, but then there's sociology, then there's anthropology, then there's a little bit of politics. Certainly, there's uh, theology in it too. There's there's a lot of different like 
when we talk about intersectional dynamics, it crosses so many, it, it, because it's a human dynamic. Right, right. It crosses so many subfields, I guess, that it's, like I can, I can be an expert at as much as I can about like behavioral psychology or uh, evo psych. But then somebody will say, "Well, evo bio is this," or there's there. I I didn't even know this. There's an actual field of study, uh, evolutionary anthropology, as well. And so now I have to figure that kind of stuff out and really sort of be a, at least understand enough about it and maintain an interest in in all these kind of broad fields so that I can at least speak from an educated position when I'm connecting dots or I'm presenting ideas. Well, it seems like what I've what I've noticed in, and I've I, I think I read your book. I read the Rational Mail a couple of years ago, and then read uh, the second book, Preventive mm-hmm. Medicine. I think right after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've noticed over time, just kind of tuning in and out to social media, is there's there seem to be a lot of barriers to understanding, even what you're saying in your first book, and what kind of what I picked on picked up on both from you know, I went back and I kind of analyzed the book from a, I used to teach English, so I kind of analyzed it from a rhetorical point of view and, and kind of a more academic thing like I would have done with my students in the past 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I saw that there are, I picked up on three different elements there. There's the intellectual part or the, the informational part where you're, you know, trying to explain intersectional dynamics in light of evolutionary psychology as well as game and you know, there's the rhetorical part of it, which is how you present that in the book, how you, you know, just write down to word choice, like you were mentioning before. And then there's, there's the other, you know, those, those are either barriers or bridges, depending on how well you execute and how, you know, who, who your reader is, which could be anybody. And so that in itself is a challenge. And then, you know, something, something that I've picked up on more as a result of my experience, and which I assume applies to many is, what I call the emotional curtain people have, which is the, I guess the, you know, their their own investment or their own buy-in to what they want to believe and what they've lived their life by, as opposed to some of the realities that you're arguing for in your book. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time pushing through that emotional curtain they've made for themselves to be able to even understand or receive what you're trying to say accurately. Yeah, that's that's also a particular challenge for book four, which is uh, rational male religion. Uh, right. I, I I noticed this a long time ago when I was uh, when I actually was in school and I was doing peer counseling. Is uh, I uh, I studied and understood this concept. It's called ego investment, and I I I hate to think that I'm the only one that came up with this, but I started using that term quite a bit. And I think a lot of other people have picked up on it as well, but I didn't, I didn't coin that term. It's actually a psychological term, but it's, uh, it's how, um, when somebody has a strong belief in something, it could be politics, it could be religion, it could be just like uh, the, the way you view the world, your world perspective or whatever. Um, maybe the way you were raised, I don't know. Um, but those particular beliefs that are well unique to that particular person anyways, um, become so much a part of that person's personality that if you attack that belief in some way, 
people perceive it as an attack on themselves. That's why they say it's an ego investment because the, the personality, your part of your personality is like, say, your religion or your, your politics or what you, you know, what you believe about the world, you know. And so when you attack those things or when you even just, you don't even have to attack them, like I, particularly when it comes to like people's preconceptions about intersexual dynamics because that is really intimately linked to people's, uh, what I call their reproductive problem. It's finding somebody to uh, to have sex with. I mean, primarily have sex with. I mean, really, that's where the PUAs came from. Um, but right. then it goes beyond that. Like, uh, who am I going to uh, have sex with? Who am I going to start a family with? Who, is, you know, and this is men and women both, but, uh, you know, since I, I speak to men, uh, we are raised from a very early age, from like five years on, you know, five years. I always use five years old, by the way, because I that's when I was taking child psychology, everybody impressed upon me that when you're five, when you have a five-year-old child, that's when they're like little sponges and they sort of like absorb their surroundings and they're very impressionable. So I always start it right at that point. But since the time you're a child to, let's say you're 30 years old, um, you are, there's a something that's impressed upon you, which I, you know, what we kind of colloquially call a uh, game uh, is, you know, what is the best way to go from being single and sexless to being, um, you know, in a relationship, having sex, um, potentially starting a family and being a mother and a father. And um, when you're brought up, that's that's really a belief set. Particularly, it can be it can be linked with uh, religion for sure. Uh, it can be linked with just the fact that you believe in Disney romances and right. it, you know, what I, you know, if you've, I don't think you've read the third book yet, but I, I refer to the village, which is sort of our, our social uh, influences, whether that's, uh, you know, Disney or pop culture or music or stories or whatever, anything that is sort of like the popular narrative right now is what I call the village. And so you've got, um, You've got all these village influences in somebody, and people take those and they turn them into ego investments. So when a guy, and this is sort of forms of a foundation of the idea of the blue pill. So what happens is guys form these ideas, and they think that the best way to go from being sexless and single to being, you know, uh, getting laid and have, you know, getting married, that kind of stuff, they believe that there is a certain way that you're supposed to do that. Right. Um, and so when I when I you know, I become sort of the iconoclast when I say, you know, like, well, not necessarily so. And I'm only picking apart the dynamics. I'm not like attacking the person or even really attacking the belief. I'm just pulling things apart. I'm, I'm unraveling the thread. And just doing that is enough to really set people's ego investments off. And so they'll fight me on it. And that's how we get the that's how we get trolling. That's how we get, you know, guys who just are very resistant to to uh, to the ideas that I think the red pill uh, presents to guys. And even just the questions, it doesn't have to say, well, this is the way things are. You can just question that belief. And people interpret that as an attack. And they interpret it as an attack that is also very personal to them because they believe that if they stick to their guns and they do what the blue pill has told them and they do what the village has told them, and this is the plan and this is what you have to do in order to solve your reproductive problem, there, that's, there's an existential anxiety that goes along with that. If I veer from the, yeah. from the proper plan, then I might not ever get laid or I might not ever start a family or I might not ever get married or, or is, is even marriage something I want, that kind of stuff. You ask those questions and then that becomes an attack on the ego because not only is it just, it's not like 
it's not like saying, oh, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or whatever. I don't, you know, however you want to attack the, the ideas of, you know, different ideologies. That's one thing. It's another thing if I, or even a religion. But if I attack or I it perceived as an attack on how you, how it's best for you to go from being, you know, to, you know, being sexless and single to getting to where you want to be reproductively, that causes a lot of anxiety. And that's why a lot of people are very, very resistant to, uh, to the red pill. Yeah, I've noticed that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, shit that gets thrown around on Twitter and on other social media uh, that I've seen where people attack those ideas and it's usually hypergamy uh, or something related to that. Um, or spinning plates, of course. Everybody hates that too, right? Um, but I see them. I see them doing that. But you know, having read your book, and you know, don't get me wrong. I don't. You know, I don't think I'm a super genius or anything. I've got a master's degree. I spent some time teaching, majored in philosophy. I'm used to reading some heavy, dense stuff, mm-hmm. and getting through Rational Mail was was a challenge because. For the very reasons you just mentioned, there are a lot of things that run counter to everything that we've sort of been conditioned to think as we've grown up. And even as a, you know, I read it as a, I don't know, 47, 48, 49 year old guy, having just come out of a pretty rough divorce myself. Um, but my own, my own blue pilledness made it, made that divorce even rougher than it really needed to be. And and so I, so I read through, I would read that, and I would have to put the book down, go out and cut the grass think through that, think about what the implications were. Some of them were kind of scary just because they run so counter to what you've based your life on for a few decades and having to give that up or change that, even if there's some overwhelming evidence to suggest that you should, uh, that can be tough. You know, that I experienced that myself and um, I, I did eventually, for me, I accepted it because it, it ran true with my experience, but I can understand why a lot of people have trouble with it. The thing that I think is interesting, though, getting back to the main point, is that I see people, whether it's intentional or not, and there's probably some of both, they either misrepresent or don't, don't understand what hypergamy means, and then they go off on rants about it. And it seems to me that there's a, there's a lot of either misinformation or disinformation or misunderstanding going on there. Yeah, it's deliberate. It's all, I mean, here's the thing is if, if guys, when they read my book and it sort of rocks their world for them, there's, there's usually two, two responses. It's not, there's never any kind of like middle ground, unfortunately. Um, Guys will usually just either reject it outright, or they'll they'll say, "Oh man, I can't believe I'd never got this before." I've, or, or they'll they come back to me and they'll say, "I've always known these things were true, but I never had the words to sort of articulate these words, you know, mm-hmm. these these things that I always kind of thought were going on in the back of my head." And so, you know, I always have to sort of deal with uh, the guys who end up rejecting it still can't avoid the the questions. And it's like I was saying before, it's not so much that uh, it, it's not so much that I'm attacking, it's that I'm asking the wrong questions. Right. And it's questions that they go, well, wait a minute. Or I connect dots and I say, have you ever thought about this? Have you thought about that? So what happens is the guys who want to reject it because it's such a challenge to their, you know, their their upbringing or their religion or their ego and their ego that has been invested in these beliefs that are supposed to be. Um, you know, in lockstep with with their reproductive problem, um, 
they will usually distort what I have to say. And so we get you get into um, issues of ideology. And so a lot of people, the way that they want to fight um, what it is, just the questions that I say, the, the ideas that I put forth, they want to say, well, the red pill is an ideology. I'm like, no, it's not. It's what I call praxology, and that's probably as best as I can say it. Um, but people want to say that it's an, it's an ideology. And I, I thought about that for a while, and I talked about this with my, my friend uh, uh, Ryan Stone, and he was saying that the reason that they're doing this, and I tend to agree, is because they have to reduce this information to right or wrong. And that's the only way that they can really accept it. So, um, you, you, uh, so what happens is they want to they misrepresent what it is that I'm saying. Yeah. Like if I talk about hypergamy, I've, I have done this for at least the last six or eight years where I have said, okay, people take the, uh, I, I use hypergamy because it's, it's the one that's probably the most controversial for people because a lot of guys take that and they distort it either one way or the other. They distort it in the fact that it's, it's something that is unavoidable and they, they're doomed and they'll never get laid and they'll never, they'll never get married. And this is sort of like the black pill MGTOW um, response. And so they'll use it and they'll just, uh, it's red meat for them. Like they, yeah. it's, it's gloom and doom and they want gloom and doom. And so they'll take that, they'll take the idea of, of hypergamy. And as many times as I say, Hey, look, you know, hypergamy is not a straight jacket. There are, you know, the adaptations around it. They've been around for a very long time, but they don't want that. They don't want to hear that. They want somebody to commiserate with them. So there's that aspect. And then there's the guys who will say, well, hypergamy is not actually this, or they'll try to redefine it. And they try to redefine it in the most binary extreme way that they possibly can, because if they can make Make it sound bad if they can make it sound evil. Um, it's it becomes it's no longer that's why they want to make the red pill an ideology is because if it can be cast in terms of black or white or positive or negative or good or evil whatever, um, then it's easier for them to reject or to accept. And this is the the I you know, this is a classic uh, almost um, I don't say ideological, but it's the classic idea of like dualism versus like ghost in the machine kind of thing, like determinism. And that's, that's another thing. It's like, you'll get people who are very religious and they'll go, well, role is being deterministic. I'm like, no, I'm just asking these questions. I'm connecting these dots. What are your answers? What do you think about this? I'm just, like I said, by me asking those questions, by me connecting those dots or, or throwing out those ideas, that's enough to really set them off. And so the, the, the critiques, the, the, the outright trolling, the outright misrepresentation of what I'm saying is usually, uh, I want to say, an adaptive way of protecting their ego investments uh, that they still really want to cling to. So when I talk about guys who are wrapped up in the purple pill, it's guys who have uh, become aware of what I you know, pr propose in, in the red pill, or not just me, but other guys too. Um, and then it's too much for them. They, they, they can't deny it, but they can't accept it. And so they say, okay, well, you know, what Rolla says about this is right. What Rolla says about that is right. But it's not all this, or it's not, they'll misrepresent what I'm saying. It's not all this. It's not all that. They think that I'm like being in, you know, very binary myself. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just, again, I'm just proposing these things. And so what happens is you get guys who will go, okay, well, you can be red pill, but you can still cling to your old blue pill ideals. You can still solve your blue pill problems with red pill, you know, awareness. And I've always said this, I said, you're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to have the 
the goals that the village and the blue pill and everything raised you to believe are true are false. And it presents this, um, it presents this situation or, you know, condition, I guess, where guys have to sort of reinvent themselves. And when you have pretty much followed the blue pill path and uh, design for so long and suddenly that's all gone and you don't know what to do with yourself, that's really scary to guys because they don't have the creativity to reimagine themselves or rebuild themselves in a red pill paradigm. And so what do they do? Well, they go back and they cling to to those ideals and say, well, you know, Roll, what Roll says is pretty good. It's pretty right. But you can still have the white picket fence and a dog in the yard and 2.5 kids and, and still have the nuclear family and then live the Disney. You, know, you can still have a soulmate and you can still have, you know, you can have one-itis as long as she's your wife. And, you know, and, and oh, and in the Bible, it says this too. And so the Bible was really read yeah. before Rolo came along. And so there's, a, and it's, so it's, it's added on and added on and added on just to pretty much prevent that guy or to to insulate that guy from actually having to recreate himself in a red pill paradigm. And that's tough. I, I get that. I've written several essays about that. I'm saying, you know, I, I get it. That's that's the that's what I call the abyss. It's like yeah. when you get cut away from the blue pill and you get cut away from that old ideal ideology, but you get cut away from your old conditioning. And you don't know what to do with yourself. You're like, oh, you, a lot of guys go into nihil, nihilism. They go into despair. They get despondent. They, that's why you get the black pill. Right? The guy, oh, I'm just going to give up. I don't have anything to do with this anymore. You know, women hate me. I'll never, I'll never measure up. And so they wallow in that. And hopefully that's just a phase and they move through that. But I know a lot of guys don't. So... You know, I, I can only I can only be as helpful as I can be, but eventually it comes down to the person and how they accept it and how they're going to rebuild their lives after it. Yeah. Well, you know, when I went through that experience, because I had that entire experience you just described, and the way I the way I described it to friends and family it was like trying to play backgammon with a bunch of chess pieces, mm-hmm. and you've got like this one set of rules you know, that's driven by the chess pieces. You got another set of rules that is determined by the backgammon board and it, it just, they don't work together and, and you don't know what to do at that point. And trying to figure that out can be very daunting, especially, you know, it, it can be, I, I don't really know how it would affect somebody younger because I'm not, but I know that, you know, going into my late forties, early fifties, going through divorce, working through all this stuff myself, especially later in life, it's very difficult to not just say, well, I'm either going to just get married again and do the same thing all over again, make all the same mistakes all over again, because that's the easiest way to go. Or you can, you know, you can go nihilistic about it, or you can try to figure out a completely new way of living. And that can be scary, but also at the same time, at least for me, I saw the possibilities there too. And I said, Hey, you know, this, this is also an adventure and you know, there's no, if it's not a little bit scary, at least, and it's not an adventure anyway. So, you know, I'm going to go that way. And I'm glad I did because I'm, I'm having the time of my life now. And a lot of it is thanks to sort of recalibrating my thinking about all of these things, you know, based on a lot of your work and a lot of, you know, stuff I read on game and everything else. So, you know, to me, I think it's a, it provides a great opportunity if you can get there. Yeah, that's actually why I wrote the second book was because I had so many people after the first book were saying, man, I wish I had known this stuff before. I wish I would have known this before I made these decisions. 
you know, to get married, to yeah. get married to this person, to, uh, to having kids, to redirecting my life or moving to here or whatever, you know, there's a lot, uh, I don't, I, a lot of people don't like to face these sort of truths, like particularly later in life. But um, like I have guys that I counsel who I, one guy's in his seventies and he looks wow. he's just become, you know, sort of red pill aware. And he's looking back on his life going, I made all of these decisions for the last, you know, well, 60, 50, 60 years, according to uh, a, an old paradigm or an old uh, social contract or what I believed every, I, by a, a book of rules that I thought everybody else was playing by. Right. And so I had so many guys after the first book say, well, I wish I would have had this information sooner. Or I wish I would have had the rational mail when I was 19 and so I was 39. And I said, okay, fine. Well, let's go and see if I can help guys who are um, at all stages of life. But I, the, the second book, if anybody doesn't know, is, is pretty much based on a timeline of what, according to you know, what I can sort of suss out and distill for guys is a, a, a timeline of what they can expect from women and the priorities that women have for men at different phases of their maturity in an effort to help those guys make better decisions at the point of life where they're at. So you can read book two at, like, say, 15 years old. You can be in high school and you can say, okay, well, this is what's coming up when I get to be 18 or when I'm 20 or whatever. Or you've got a guy who's like uh, 30, 32, and he's going, man, I can't believe I'm, uh, you know, all these girls who didn't want to have anything to do with me. Now suddenly they love me to death. And that's, of course, that, you know, 29 to 31 is the epiphany phase for women. And yeah, you're going to get a lot more interest then because women are changing their priorities for what they want for their future, their romantic future, but also for their life future. Because really what comes down to it is we talk about women's mating strategy or men's mating strategy, it's really a life strategy. It's right. really how are we going to, um, I, you know, how am I going to solve my reproductive problem, but also going forward, how am I going to have kids? Who am I going to be living with? And that is all hinges upon your mating strategy. And right now we prioritize women's mating strategy way above men's mating strategy just because that's where we are in, in Western societies right now. So in that book, I try to uh, analyze at least the most significant phases of maturity for women in, you know, westernizing, globalizing culture right now. And I've gone from like, say, 15 years old all the way up to 50 years old. And uh, I, I probably could go a little bit further if I was to go back and rewrite that. I've actually written some essays. They're not in any book, but I've written some essays, a couple of essays about menopause and, and what guys can, can expect from women when they go into menopause or what they can expect from a woman who has divorced her husband or beta husband from like when she got married at 29 years old and now she's divorced at 39. Why is she thinking the things that she's thinking at that point? So you've got guys of all walks of life and all age demographics who can benefit from that book because it will give, and it's not, I'm not saying it's particular and it's like specific to every girl. I'm not saying it's like all women are like, that. I'm just saying these are the general things that you can look forward to plan accordingly. So here you go. And so that's why I wrote, I wrote that one. Um, because so many guys were just saying, you know, I, I, I'm trying to head off the, the crash. You know, it's like uh, Rich Cooper has his show called Before the Trainwreck. Uh, that right. book, second book is, should really be the textbook for that show. Well, it, you know, the, for me, it always comes back to hypergamy. And, and it's a very, people treat it, people, I think one of the reasons people misunderstand it, and, and this is going to be aimed at the people who are, who sincerely misunderstand it, who aren't just trying to throw shade, 
is that I think a lot of guys they just want a heuristic. They want to they want to be the you know they're the they're the bird dog out in the out in the field and everything is either sign or absence of sign and so they just want the sign to look for so then they can go do this and then they can go do that whereas the concept itself and the reality of it is much more contextual and nuanced and because I'm a language guy I approach it I always think about George Orwell's politics and the English language essay where he talks about the relationship between the degradation of a language and the inability of people to think clearly. And those two things go hand in hand so that when words are constantly misused or misdefined, then your thinking about them gets all messed up. And then because of whatever your own agenda is or your own failure to think it through, you start using those words incorrectly. So the two things go hand in hand. And, and that's what I look at when I, when I look at some of this stuff that goes on with people talking about hypergamy and maybe some other concepts is that there's just all of this, 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 uh, this mud on, on both sides of it. And people, the more people don't use it correctly or think clearly, the worse it makes communicating about it. And that just seems to snowball. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, hypergamy is probably the most contentious issue. If you if you go and Google the term hypergamy, I think my site is at least the fourth or the fifth return yeah. hit on Google because that's how much I've written about yeah, it. I did that. Yeah. Um, so, I I it it's one of the most uh, certainly bastardized uh, concepts or terms, I guess. Uh, that people want to redefine. And when people have, uh, like I said, an ego investment in something or they're, they're resistant to an idea um, for whatever reason, uh, usually the first, um, the first thing that they'll attack, particularly with me, is like, well, you're using that term incorrectly. And when I can remember when I started using the term hypergamy and it was just sort of a, a, a placeholder term I remember, um, and, and, and critics will say this too, well, you know, well, hypergamy doesn't mean what you think it means. It's, it was used back in the 1950s, and it meant to, it was something that was associated with the caste system in India and women's, uh, Indian women's, uh, you know, tendency to marry up because that's what, that was beneficial to them. And so that was, I'm like, yeah, okay, I got that. But guess what? We're in, we're now, well, back at the time, we're 20, 2010, 2020, somewhere, and I, I said, look, you know, we can, guess what, you know, it's, it's language and we can broaden the definition of that language. And so that's why I started using hypergamy as a term. And it's, it's kind of caught on as, as far as, uh, you know, um, women's and not just their, uh, not just the side of hypergamy that is all about, you know, uh, provisioning and finding the best security provider that they can find. It's also about the, their sexual interests and their reproductive interests as well. So I started opening this up and I started talking about it and I refer to hypergamy in the terms of like alpha seed and beta need. And I, for a very long time, I was run up the flagpole for, for using the term incorrectly, or I didn't say it right. People say, oh, you said hypergamy. And I, I, you know, since I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, but then I, there was a time when, when Dr. Jordan Peterson was on with Joe Rogan and he used the term hypergamy. Now he only focused on the beta bucks side of hypergamy, but he right. used it in the reference in the same definitive reference that I had been using it for probably six or seven years prior to that interview with Joe Rogan. And I'm like, ah, oh, finally, people will like, you know, at least understand what the concept is. And that's really when it comes to language, when it comes to understanding the language, um, hypergamy is just 
an abstraction. Alpha is an abstraction. Beta is an abstraction. If you want to talk about like the sociosexual hierarchies that like say Vox Day uses, like Sigma or Delta or whatever, I, I don't get into that kind of detail, but right. you use those as they're, they're abstractions for concepts. And so you use those those terms so that you can talk about bigger dynamics, not so that you're like, like a lot, everybody will say, well, you use alpha incorrectly. You, you know, P, you know, human beings aren't silverback gorillas, you know? Uh, yeah, dude, I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I know that. And I've been writing about that for an awful long time, but they use that as sort of their critique. So they, they what they try to do is they try to say, well, attack your definitions. Like these are the, these are, this is what it says in the English language. This is what it says in the dictionary. This is what it says in the psych, uh, in the DSM, like psycho, uh, diagnostic and statistical manual. This is, you know, this is how it's really, I'm like, okay, fine. This is a concept. This is an abstraction. I'm not saying that, you know, we're, you know, lions on the Serengeti or something like that. I'm saying that this is, there are, there are dominant males and these are some characteristics of it. And then there's sub, you know, submissive males, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Alpha seed, beta need, we can go and we can, we can't have those conversations unless we can, we can have some sort of, you know, abstractions and some terms so that we can move on. And that's the goal. The goal is to say, that alpha is out. You use an, uh, a wrong, uh, incor- what is it, an uh, incorrect paradigm or whatever for, for uh, a false dichotomy. You use a false dichotomy for, for alpha. Okay, well, we can spend all our time trying to figure out what you're comfortable calling alpha, or we can just use this term and we can go on to the bigger concepts that you can accept because they attack your ego investments. And so rather than actually talking about those concepts, you want to go back and say, you use these terms wrong. Like, Okay, fine, but what about the bigger concept? That's that. That's and that's the whole like distraction. That's the sidetracking of the whole thing. So when we talk about hypergamy, when we talk about uh, alpha, when we talk about whatever, uh, if I talk about the soulmate myth, I just did a, a video on the soulmate myth or the or one itis. People want to say, well, that's not what one itis is. I can have one itis for my wife, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> if you want to call it like having a healthy relationship with your wife. Okay, fine, but that's not what I'm saying. So. Um, so people will attack the definition. One itis is like the way I look at it is it's almost like a, a sales pitch for codependency is what one itis looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I look at it, because I, you know, here's an interesting story you may you may you know find interesting. Uh, when I was when I was younger, I very briefly was considering going into the ministry and. I majored in philosophy and religion in college, partly to do that. But I went to a liberal arts college. I didn't go to like a Bible college or anything. And I was in, uh, I think it was some kind of pastoral counseling class. And one of the things that our the professor told me was, or told the class, was that we were talking about how to how to how to introduce subjects with parishioners that they would be resistant to, but that they needed to hear or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and he brought up that very thing about one-itis. He said, everybody wants to believe that, you know, God has predestined them for this person or that person. And and he didn't buy into that. And, and what he told us was, you know, you, you probably shouldn't buy into that either. But, and if you don't, you're never going to convince anybody that you counsel that, it's not true. Mm-hmm. He said that you're, you've, you'll be talking with them for three three weeks, but the, the culture or whatever he said has been talking to them about that for three decades. Right. And you're not going to get past that. And 
you know, and it's interesting because I, I came into adulthood and marriage and, and family and everything with that mentality. I didn't believe in why not one-itis either. From a theoretical perspective, I thought, you know, yeah, that's ridiculous. And, and I got away from religion, and so that wasn't even playing a role anymore. But the interesting thing to me is, uh, no matter how I defined that term for myself and decided that, you know, I didn't, I didn't buy into it, behaviorally, when it actually came to being married and then going through the, you know, all the events that led up to the divorce, behaviorally, I was suffering from one-itis anyway, even though intellectually, I didn't believe in it at all. And I think that's, that to me seems like a challenge there, because even if we don't want to believe that, we still end up somehow living it. Yeah, I get, um, I get, uh, I don't get too much criticism, honestly, from women all that much. I think a lot of women will say, uh, you know, I, I agree with what Rolla says, or, they, or they'll, they'll jokingly say, you know, all this stuff in your book is true, but guys shouldn't know anything, shouldn't know this, because it takes away that advantage, right? But the biggest criticism that I get from women is they say, well, your tone, if you would just change your tone, if you would just sweeten it up, you know, if you would just be nicer, then, like, people would, you know, would understand you. And I, it's not the tone. It's not. In fact, I'm trying to put in it as neutral a tone as I possibly can. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, it does come across very neutral. It's just people's reaction to it is negative exactly. based on their own perspective. Exactly. And that's what I said. As I, I said, it's not the the way I'm delivering the information. It's the information itself. It's the information <laughs> that is really bugging you. And and so I can, I can say it as nice as I can. But you're still going to reject it because it's something that is, uh, you know, it, it's unflattering to women's nature and sometimes men's nature, too. I, I get a lot of guys who will say, like, I think my biggest critics really are guys. They're not, not women so much. Because oh, yeah. women will just either, they'll get upset by it and they'll get outraged and they'll get their sort of indignation high off of it and then they'll move on. Guys, if, if it really rocks their world, if it really unplugs them, like I hope it does, that it it they, it either is a life changing well it's a life changing experience for them one way or the other it's positive or negative and for the guys where it is like negative that's when they, I mean guys will dedicate their lives to try to defend like their ego investment and just simply what what I you know the information that I'm I'm putting across there and so when when you talk, you were just talking about the the soulmate myth. Um, that's actually a, a part of my fourth book um, in religion, and that's one of the reasons we're actually going to be talking about this on Rule Zero pretty soon. Here is um, I, I had to. I remember when I first started writing about the soulmate myth and and one itis because one itis was a concept that uh, that pickup artists had talked about as like catching feelings for one of your plates. Uh, POA was really kind of about non-exclusive dating for a long time, and I call I, I, here's another thing tone right. I I've always I've always referred to non-exclusive dating as spinning plates because that was something that guys could sort of understand, wrap their head around. It was another one of those jingoism kind of things that 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 guy. And so and women of course picked up on that and they go oh it's so insensitive you're dehumanizing women. And, and I'm like, no, I think women are natural plate spinners. In fact, you don't even have to be taught about this. And yeah, that's right. natural for you because that's in your best, you know, mating strategies interests. So once you get past that, then, you know, people yeah. give me grief about, uh, you know, non-exclusive dating and then, how, oh, you should be one man, one woman. And so we start talking about uh, the soulmate myth and one-itis. And one-itis was something like when I, when I was reading, um, 
the old school. This was before even the, the game came out when we were talking about one-itis. This was something that like PUAs would talk about. And I'm like, okay, what's this all about? And then I realized about the soulmate myth. And I had already kind of uh, rejected the idea of the soulmate myth um, because I'd seen so many guys or uh, women too say, oh, he, she's my one, he's my one. And then they end up getting divorced and, or she was a quality woman. What a great quality woman. And then they get divorced and like, oh, I hate that bitch. I can't believe she, you know, uh, she, she changed on me, you know, and then suddenly their, their mentality is not what it used to be because reality smacks them in the face. And, and now all of those ideals, all that idealism that they had when they were going into the marriage, all that's out the window and they're different people as a result of that. It's like, well, can we in some way analyze where, what that idealism was about? Why did they have that in the first place? Why do we even have the idea of the soulmate myth? And the simple answer is, is that we have the soulmate myth is really a, a if anybody doesn't know this, it's like having a soulmate or finding the one for you. Uh, the idea that there is one predestined, preordained in religious circles, it's like, oh, it's the, the, the partner that God has ordained for you since before you were born. And, and it's like that idea has is something that has come in from a secular society, a romantic society, a, a, a westernized romantic social order that is prioritized on on women's mating strategy above all else and so we have this idea that there's this one perfect person for us out there there's this one soulmate that we're going to have for the for the remainder of eternity kind of thing and i i picked that apart and i at, at first i wrote about it and i go this is really an unhealthy obsession i think for a lot of guys because it predisposes them to suicide it predisposes them to uh well one itis to to making really bad decisions because on some level of a consciousness their ego has been invested in the idea that there's only one great person for them that's going to be their one true love of their life and it's going to be this big shakespearean you know poetic you know relationship that we all hope to have in fact you will get like uh you'll get online data. I remember when eHarmony first came out and they're like, we'll help you find your soulmate. And like, oh, really? You know, people like sign up and they're, they're like, can't believe it. This is so cool. I'm going to find my soulmate online. How awesome is that? It's a, it'll streamline the process. Um, and, and, you know, savvy marketeers understand that you sell, uh, you, you feed fear and sell security. And so that's what that is. I, I fear that I'll never find my one. Oh, don't worry about it. We got this great new technology. We'll find her for you. And so you're selling the security for that. And, and I, I, at first I wanted to stress, and if you read my first book, I've talked about this. I will stress it again in book four, but in the first book, I talk about one-itis, uh, the fallacy of the one, and also the soulmate myth. And um, I, I put those in the very beginning of book one because I thought, well, if guys only read one chapter of this book, what's the most important thing that they need to take away? And that was the first thing that came to my mind is like, you got, you have to break yourself of this idea because you will make very stupid life damaging decisions if this is your religion, because that's what this is. It's, it's yeah. a secular religion is what it is, is the belief that there's one preordained perfect person out there that completes you. And again, like I said, mar savvy marketeers, advertisers pick up on that and they, they will cater to that and, and, and profit from that if that's what you believe. And a lot of very well-meaning, well-rational people still, even if you're not, even you could be an atheist and still believe in a soulmate myth. <laughs> so, um, so that's why I put that in the very beginning there. But then for this book, and I just, I, I haven't even discussed this with anybody yet, but um, in, the, in this book, I kind of dig into how it is 
uh, it was a necessary social convention to promote the idea of socially enforced monogamy. So if you believe that there's only one person for you out there, you're, as particularly as a guy, and this benefits women's mating strategy above all else, if you're a guy and that's what you believe, then that, what that does is it promotes a monogamous society, that there is only one person out there for you. And so what that does is it predisposes most men um, that, you know, most, we talk about the 80 percenters, the most, the beta men who don't have the natural aptitude for, you know, having many women all the time, or even like the, the mindset that they should have many women. Uh, and why, how do they get to that mindset? Because they've been taught the soulmate myth for a long time. Like you're only supposed to be one per one man, one woman, and you have babies and you'll live happily ever after. And, and, and if you're a Mormon, you'll even have her in the afterlife and you're sealed to that. Right. And, you know, women can't even get into the afterlife unless they're sealed to their guy. And boy, that sure promotes, if, I mean, we talk about polygamous, you know, polygamy and stuff in certain religions. That's one thing, but it's another thing to like, have that as part of like sort of an article of faith, but it's to promote um, a socially enforced monogamy. You stick with this one person. And so as a result, you get guys who become serial monogamists. They only stay with one person. They, you know, they, they never really understand or, or pick up on women's nature because they've never had the opportunity to experience women's nature um, by dating non-exclusively, by spinning plates. So I go into it a little bit deeper in book four. Like the first book is like, okay, here's what could happen if you believe in this crap and you will make bad decisions and you will probably be better off if you are date non-exclusively. But then I, in, like I said, in book four, I kind of dig into that a little bit more and I say, okay, here's the social reasons why we have this right now. And it's really to uh, reinforce the idea of social enforcement. Well, yeah, part of that is, and one of the reasons I'm so interested in, in that and in the subject in general is because my thing is, is even though I, I, I got out of academia and I spent the last couple of decades in uh, software engineering, basically, and startup world and stuff like that, I've kind of been drifting back towards my literary roots. And one of the things that I've gotten into is trying to understand why why we spend so much money on stories, why we spend so much money on making movies, going to movies, writing novels, buying novels, reading novels, and putting them on tape, all that kind of stuff. And in reading some evolutionary history, uh, mainly biology, but some anthropology, a little bit of psychology too, one of the themes that always comes up is one of the reasons Homo sapiens dominated over other early human species, and this is something I get into in every one of these talks I end up doing because it's just always, it's always how I see it, is that um, basically we're good liars. We, we were able to abstract, make up things, uh, use concepts and stories to bind our own tribe together and also to demonize the, you know, the Cro-Magnons, whoever else it was that we were competing with. And so the theory goes anyway. Uh, that's one of the things that, that helped us be dominant was that ability to communicate and specifically to tell each other stories. And I, and I got to thinking about that. And, and stories can be really, really powerful to do both of those things. And when you start thinking about, you know, what is religion? If you boil it down, religion is a story, and that's really all it is. There may be more to it. There may be not. I happen to think not. But as far as the way we interact with it, it's a story. Mythology is a story. Advertising is a story because there's all kinds of implied things about the world they want to put you into when you're watching an ad or reading some marketing or anything like that. So there's, a, there's an evolved uh, strength there 
for us to both tell stories to get what we want and to listen to stories to decide what we need or to you know, meet some other kind of need that we have. And I think those two things play into each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny you should say that. I have a uh, I have an essay called Storytelling. Actually, I I, I wrote it right after the um, what was it? Right after the first of the new Star Wars movies came out. I think was it the Force Awakens or something. I, I think that's what I wrote. And I was I was writing about storytelling and how we as just sort of a, a species um, we thrive on that and we we like people who can tell a good story we can sit around and and spin a yarn i guess um and yeah that, i mean from an evolutionary standpoint that's a uh, an evolutionary adaptation and it's a very much an advantage because we can pass on information even if it's just in the abstract right. if it's just like uh you know oral histories and things like that of course and those pass into being legend and, and myth and everything else but um, I, I wrote it after that because I saw what was happening um, early on, and I think it's probably only become a little bit more exacerbated since then. Um, I mean, if you go and you look at the last three Star Wars movies, they're just an abomination. Uh, you know, when compared to the mythological basis of like the first three, right. and um, and the reason for that is that I think one of the we're at a point right now. I hope this changes. I, I really do. I'm not. I, I don't see. I don't want to sound like negative or nihilistic about this. I really hope this changes. But I don't think that we, at least this generation, maybe the millennial generation. I don't know. But I don't think that we know how to tell stories like we used to. Um, based on like say the hero's journey or like basic old school archetypes um you know the like we have we have so convoluted and and distorted uh gender norms that's just that's that i think goes without saying right now but when we look at the stories that we've been telling or let's just say over the last 10 years we don't tell anything new we go back to what worked Four. So that's why, like, Star Wars just became this complete abortion because nobody knew how to tell those stories. Uh, I talked to the guys on Masculine Geek about this all the time. I said, you're never going to see I, – I, I, anybody listening to this, if you're a writer, and, and I'm going to be – once I'm done with book four, I'm going to switch over to, like, what I call red pill fiction. And I'm going to give. I'm going to make you a millionaire right now. If you want to make a million bucks and you want to be a screenwriter or you want to write stories for a movie or whatever – Go back to the old school archetypes. Write a character that is like Captain Kirk or Han Solo or uh, Indiana Jones. These guys who are unapologetically masculine guys based on the old conventional masculinity that those characters were. Like nobody cared. Like people expected uh, William Shatner to be Captain Kirk. They expect that, that archetype. And... The reason I say that is because you need to get back to that because I don't think too many people really know how. We've forgotten how to write those characters because we've taken our stories and turned them into uh, vehicles for, yeah. uh, for ideology, for whether social justice, yeah. or political, sexual, gender, whatever. We use those. And that's the thing is like we always say this is like when we go back and we see like the gender swapped version of like Ghostbusters or we see the gender swapped version of Ocean's Eleven or whatever. Or, 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 uh, or was it the latest one was like Terminator, right? You know, it's all, it's all you know, the all female cast and they, they're, they flop. They're just absolute bombs every time I do that. Well, why is that? Well, because those characters and those stories and those plots were based on an old conventional, uh, you know, and uh, old archetypes 
that were based on you know, a storytelling that we no longer know how to do. And so what do we do? Rather than write new stories, because nobody would listen to new stories. Nobody would, li- nobody would care about, if you wrote like something that's similar to like a, an all-female version of like, what was it, Captain Marvel, right? You go and you take those stories and you were to make something new. Like Captain Marvel is an old character. We just put a feminist SJW in the role and pretend that, that that's the way it always was. No, it's not. And that's why that movie flopped. That's why it's that it was probably one of the worst uh, Marvel movies that they had. But look at the ones that are successful, the ones that go back and they embrace like Captain America or, or Tony Stark or you know, Iron Man or any of these old, you know, why are those uh, franchises successful? Well, because they go back to what worked prior to all this crap that's going on. Now, of course, what's going to happen and, and it's already happening is we're going to go and take those those old stories and bastardize them to be vehicles for ideology. And that's why you don't get a captain. Nobody would dare write a Captain Kirk anymore. No one would, he would. And I I would like to say it's because they know how to do it and they were reserved and they don't want to write a Han Solo or an Indiana Jones, but they simply don't know how to write those characters anymore. Not so much fear as it is like an ignorance of what those characters could be about. You look at well. If you look at school, you look at education. You know who reads Homer anymore? I mean, that's an old dead white male story about a dead white male doing dead white male misogynistic, toxic things, and nobody's acquainted with that anymore. So you know it gets that people are cut off from that. So you end up with something like Star Wars, which is you know when Star Wars came out, I was ten years old. That was that was. That was my modern myth right there, because as you said, it was based on the classic hero's journey, and and I just loved it. At least the first two movies, anyway. And then when I saw the 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 first, the Force Awakens came out, and of course I wanted to go see that, and extremely disappointed in the story because you're right, they they used the same trappings and the same kind of. Um, framework of maybe the first Star Wars movie, but none of the none of the deeper behavioral, psychological, mythological things were there because it was a chick. And yeah, it's a I've heard it put this way: is that the the latest Star Wars movies, and I'm talking about the main three right now, those are an SJW uh, social justice warrior video game with a Star Wars skin on it. That's what it is. That's exactly. Uh, and they, uh, and I'll, I'll, here's another, uh, maybe this is a little bit more analytical for you. Like, I, I remember going and seeing Star Wars in 1977, 78, yeah. something like that. And I think I was probably about the same. I don't know, you're probably about the same age as I am. But, like, um, when I first saw that, I understood it. I got it. It was a self-contained story. It was great. And, and people, and you want to know why it's, it's become a piece of America. Actually, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Um, is because even a 10-year-old can get it. Even, right. even an 8-year-old understands those concepts because it's really kind of part of our, I think, our evolved psyche to understand those archetypes, to understand the hero's journey, to understand conventional masculinity, conventional femininity. And they, you even have like you even have the strong female archetype that is in that, that movie that everyone right. says, oh, we didn't, we never had anything like that. No, you have it. It's been there all along. But the thing is, nobody wants to recognize that because we live in a time of gynocentrism. But even if you look at the old archetypes, if you look at the things that we understand innately, instinctively, we get that. 
because we, we instinctively understand conventional femininity, conventional masculinity, because it's part of our species understanding. It's part of our evolved mental firmware to get those things. And that's why those stories that appeal to that evolved mental firmware become very, very successful. So that's what I was saying is if you can write that kind of stuff, you can unapologetically write the write to those old dynamics, you will be a millionaire because no one is doing that right now. I use this example before. Do you remember when, um, do you remember when they re, they, they, they renewed, I guess, uh, Roseanne. Remember the show Roseanne? Yeah, yeah. Um, and they just put it out there, and then, of course, you know, stupid Roseanne Barr went and said something, and she got banned. And they, they and you notice how quickly, and this was on, I think this was ABC. Was it ABC that we did this? ABC, yeah. ABC they instantly killed the show. Instantly. They were waiting for a moment to do that. But it was yeah. the number one show on ABC when it came back out because it went back to it, 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 the theme of it went back to what was going on back in the what the late 80s or early 90s when Roseanne was around, and it was unapologetic about um, you know challenging the mainstream narrative, which is social justice right now. And you know there were still themes about social justice in it, but at least it it, it, it dared to challenge those things from an older perspective. And as soon, the number one show, instantly, bam, one number one show, and look what happened. As soon as they had an excuse to kill that show, they did immediately. Because they, that's, that's not the narrative. That's not what they want to put out there right now, and that they were just simply looking for that excuse. But why did it jump up to being the number one show, certainly on their network? I don't know how what it was rating, overall ratings-wise, but it, it, it became instantly popular. And why? Because it unapologetically challenged that narrative because people know they understand it they get it that's why they'll 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 do it so if you write an old school story i'll guarantee you you'll be you'll be successful and don't go back and try, if you want to write something new one of the things that i i've always i've heard guys say this before is like if you um if you really if you're if social justice is what you think everybody should be about or feminism is what everybody should be about or this you know these new gender norms and everything if that should be what everything's about then why don't you write something new and see how, how people respond to it? They don't, and they know why, because nobody will. So they go back to old franchises that were successful, and they use those franchises as vehicles for their ideological message. It ruins their, not only does it ruin their own ideological message, it also ruins that old franchise and fucks everything up. Well, yeah, because it's like with, with Star Wars, the story there, um, you know, like you said, even a 10-year-old gets what's going on with Luke Skywalker because a 10-year-old boy, anyway, has encountered fear already, whether it's from a bully on the playground, whether it's from kids daring him to go do this or to join them doing something. And he has to wrestle with that. He has to figure out how he's going to respond, whether he's going to, you know, man up or however you want to put it. Whereas the reboots or the, you know, the sequels of Star Wars that came out, it wasn't really about overcoming some kind of existential issue. It was about being better than a guy. And it was it was about proving that oh, women can do anything that guys can do. And there's there's nothing interesting about that. There's nothing interesting about that story. And the reason no none of those nobody's going to write a new story about it, just as you said, is they've seen how time and time again, whether it's the oceans thing, whether it's Star Wars, um, when they come out Ghostbusters, when they come out with that, nobody has an interest in seeing that because nobody buys really a woman being a physical hero. No. And I, you know, 
because we know deep down that's just not the way it goes. You know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one more example here. It's like when you see uh, a female character like say Captain Marvel, or you look at like Ray from from the new Star Wars stuff. What you're looking at is a male character that is has a female skin on it. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why we say like uh, Ray is a Mary Sue is like she's a character who just suddenly knows all of these things. She knows how to be a Jedi master. She knows how to use the Force. She knows how to use a, a lightsaber. She's she's suddenly an expert at all this great stuff. I mean, we have to retcon it a little bit and say, okay, well, you know, later you don't find this out until like the third movie. But like when you first see these characters, or, or you look at, I never saw. Captain Marvel, I've, I've yet to see that, but I, of course, you can't avoid her in the last Avengers movie, and right. I don't need to see it now because I know what the character is about just from the just from the Avengers movie, and she's a Mary Sue. In fact, she's a Mary Sue in the Avengers in that last Avengers movie There's as well. No apprenticeship whatsoever. Like God, she be, she's a godlike godlike powers, and. Right. All because she's just the chosen one, or just oh, she just has them. That's just how it works, and I'll tell you why those characters fail because they're written from they're written by females for females and for women women don't understand the hero's journey they don't understand like when we talk about men's nature and women's nature men must become women just are that's why you have ray she just is captain marvel she just is she just has these powers she just is a jedi she just is these things because that because when they're written as by women for women, that's because they don't understand the process of having to become. That's why Skywalker right. had to go through training. That's why had, you know all of these all of these classic heroes had to go through some trials to become the master of what they are. And we understand guys understand that. That's why a ten year old kid gets that because even right. a ten year old kid, just in our, our evolved mental firmware, and we're not blank slates. In our evolved mental firmware, we understand our burden of performance. We must become. Women just are. So when you have those characters like Ray, and we go, oh, God, you know what? This is like the most one-dimensional, paper-thin character you'd ever want. Well, yeah, because she was written by a woman to be that hero, but they don't understand the hero's journey because that's not the female experience. The, female, the male experience is you got to become, you got to kick ass, you got to, you got to overcome all these obstacles to get to work, to get to that mastery so that you can go. Well, women go, oh, whatever. We're just going to be what we are. We're already masters. Wouldn't it be great if we were all masters? Great, awesome. But that doesn't make for a good story. There's no plot. There's no, there's no tension. There's nothing no interesting about that. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, well. Uh, all right, so to wind this down, yeah, since we've been going for a while, the thing I was going to close with was that uh, I, uh, in fact, my previous, well, actually, two shows ago, I interviewed Ryan Stone on, on this, and uh, we talked about, one of the things we talked about was storytelling as a part of game, and I made the, I made the comment that most guys that I know who are good at game are also pretty good storytellers. Conversation. Uh, yes. Because, you know, that... Telling a story is part of, if you think about it in terms of a persuasive argument, telling a story is kind of like, in addition to getting somebody's attention and entertaining them, it's also kind of part of the visualization step. And Ryan and I were talking about it, and he pointed out that, you know, if you, and this was, I think I drew this from a sample chapter from his upcoming book, where he talked about being in a bar and and uh, sort of, 
bantering with this chick who kept following him around the bar and, you know, telling some kind of story. So it ends up kind of being us against the world. And that always seems to be a really good technique to use. I've used that before, you know, not that I even really thought about what I was doing. It's just that one of the only, one of the only tricks in my bag was, you know, telling jokes and telling stories. So that's what I used. And it seems like that's a, that's a, that's an important component to being good with game and good with women is just being playful and being able to, um, uh, you know, kind of set up that, you know, hey, what if, hey, what if it was you and me going on this adventure, which eventually leads to actually going on an adventure, right? I'll, um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a really quick example because I know that Ryan does this too, but um, I, uh, I used to have a workout partner. This guy's name was Dean, and Dean was about six foot one, six foot two, something. A really good looking dude. I mean, cut uh, like yeah. reason. I'm in my 20s. He's in his 20s. And once a month, uh, and this was when we were living in Tahoe, there was a all-male review, and he was a part of. And so <laughs> like the main strip club that used to be up there is no longer there anymore, but uh, he used to go once a month to go there, and he would make money hand over fist. And he, he would try to get me to do it, and I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but I didn't know. He could just go up there and do it. But he would tell me this. He said, you know, uh, it's not enough to just be a good-looking dude and take your clothes off on stage. And he was, I mean, and the act probably would have been good enough for, for most, but he said the, the most successful guys who are like male strippers are the guys that tell a story. So it's not just like women don't just want you to be like really good looking and ripped and you, you know, cuts and, and you're six foot tall and you got a good looking face and blue eyes and whatever. You got to You have to be the sexy fireman. You have to right. be the, the, the executive who is in a, a three-piece suit and you hand milady a rose and then you take your clothes off kind of thing. There has to be a story behind it because it takes some, like women, for example, need to, it's not just about the sex act. And this is, it, this is true of most uh, romantic literature as well. It can't just be the guy who looks like Fabio. It has to be Fabio plus he's a prince. Plus, he, uh, uh, even like in Fifty Shades of Grey, the guy has to be independently wealthy to, to still to, to complete that whole thing. Because remember, hypergamy is ba or women's mating strategy is based on alpha seed and beta need. So the alpha seed's already taken care of. What's about about the beta need? What about the story? What about the backstory behind this guy? Is it okay to be with him? Oh, maybe it's not okay to be with him, but I'm going to do it anyway, kind of thing. What's the what's the story? And you build that fantasy up. Yeah, all the best all the best PUAs could do that. They always they were good conversationalists, and that's why you would start with. And this is old school now, but that's why you would start with. Um, uh, your opener would be a storytelling, you know, like, oh, did you see the fight that was just outside here? Yeah, this little guy, big guy, you know, that kind of stuff. You, you build up, you, you, it doesn't even have to, it can just be complete bullshit, but you are building a narrative or you're building the idea in her head that you are a good storyteller or there's something more to you than just like, you're just, hey, what I, let me get you a drink, you know? Well, you know the, the example that I used with Ryan was that, um, that Bill Murray movie, Lost in Translation, where he's in Japan and and he, you know, sort of platonically hooks up with Scarlett Johansson. When they meet, he's in a he's in the lounge at the hotel, and she walks over to him, and he says, "Hey, I'm organizing a jailbreak. Are you in or out?" <laughs> and she says, "Oh, I'm in." And so, you know, they banter about that a little bit, and they go away. And that's the kind of thing. I mean, it's like it doesn't even have to be anything amazing and complicated. It's just like, hey, you know. And what, that, what you're doing, you know, it's funny you should say that because when I mean, you're talking about storytelling and how it's sort of like innate to our species, right? 
it doesn't even have to be anything all that wild. What you're doing is by even even like even failing at it, just attempting it. Right. Because I can tell a story, and that is well. First of all, it's creative intelligence too. So there's women to also select for creative intelligence, but um, it's you you are appealing to that nature, to the human nature. The I, I would say I would say this is unique to men and women is the uh, the need to have a story told to you. So yeah, and you're and and with you know when that happens in some kind of you know intersexual dynamic you're still kind of taking a leadership role there. You're saying, hey, I'm doing this. You want to come along with me? And mm-hmm. that gives you the opportunity to say, you know, yeah, I'll follow you. And that's essentially Yep, it's directorship. Yes, uh, I, I call that, um, <laughs> I call that command presence. Yeah. And, and if you, and most law enforcement people know what that means. It's, it's the ability to be the director, to right. step up and say, I'm going to, Right. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. The, one of the things that I, I, I see like a guy like Goldman do with when, they, when he puts out like uh, the idea of uh, photography game, you go out there with a camera and you're taking pictures and stuff. Well, the reason why women like that and they respond to that so well is because it's, it, you know, they want the attention, of course. They, oh, I'm on camera. But they also want to be directed. They also want to say, okay, you go over here and you do this and you go over here and you do that. And, and okay, you're, so you're now the contextual alpha. And you, you, if you set up that sort of environment, that atmosphere where I'm the guy who is going to be the one directing you, uh, like school teachers, one of the reasons why a lot of girls get infatuated with their school teachers, and that guy, not even all that alpha, but in that classroom he is. Because he's directing traffic, he's the director. He's the one that is pointing you in the right direction and says, "You do this, and you know I'll give you the grade." And the same thing with like camera game. Now you can apply that to a lot of different techniques and a lot of different styles of game. But in all of those games, the guy has to be the one who is directing the reality. And when we talk about frame, which is another jingoism, right? We talk about frame. That's what I mean, is you've got to be the director. You have to have a world within which she wants to become. Oh, we're going to have a jailbreak. Guess what? You, you are, it's your frame. Do you, are you in? Are you in my frame? Are you going to come and play along with me? I know how to play. Let's, I'll play with you, and I'll play with you. Exactly. Yep. All right, man. Hey, this has been great. Uh, where can people find you online? You can find me at therationalmail.com. That is my website. That's my blog. I'm probably the most active there. Um, you can also find all three of my books on Amazon. Just type in The Rational Mail in the search engine, and you will find all three. And then, of course, I am on Twitter. I am Rolo Tomasi at Rational Mail. Excellent. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man.